we're so happy. Thank you for being here. Um, so thankful for the opportunity to be anticipating Easter. And I know for some in our world, Easter's just a nice holiday. It's an opportunity to celebrate spring. It's a, a time to eat ham. Um, it's a time to search for eggs delivered by a bunny. I don't quite know how those two got together because I didn't know eggs and bunnies went together. Uh, but if you know the answer to that one, please shoot me an email or let me know after this week. Uh, but at Tiburon Baptist Church, Easter is uh, different. Um, it is an opportunity for us together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. That we really believe that Jesus went dead into the grave. And three days later, he emerged alive again. Now, I know some of you are looking at your watches. I'm aware of the time, so don't worry. Um, But I just want to walk with you on a quick journey of thinking about uh, this reality. Many over history have claimed to be uh, God in the flesh, claimed to be people who could come back from the dead. We've, uh, many of us, 125 of us, have been going through uh, a Bible study, a small group program called the Easter Experience. And uh, the leader of that, Kyle Eidelman, shares the story of one such woman who claimed to be someone after she died who would be able to rise back from the dead. She, like Jesus, claimed to be the Son of God. She claimed to be the daughter of God. She was born in Rhode Island in 1752. Her name was Jemima Wilkinson. And she gathered a following of about 200 people. And on the day, or as she anticipated her death, this is what she said. She said, when I die, don't worry for me. In fact, just lay my body out, and three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. Her followers did just that. And they waited. And they waited. And they waited. And can you guess what happened? (laughs) Nothing happened. Her claims to be whatever she thought she was proved out to be, proved to be untrue. But that's not the case with Jesus. In fact, C.S. Lewis reminds us or helps us think about the things that Jesus said about himself. Uh, for him, C.S. Lewis, there are kind of three conclusions you might draw from who he said he was. You, you would either say that, that he was a madman with the visions of grandeur, delusions of such And he never would be or become what he claimed to be. Or he was just a flat-out liar saying that he would be or do certain things that didn't transpire. But if all of those were true, the things Jesus claimed turned out to be realities, then there's really only one conclusion for C.S. Lewis, is that Jesus then has to be who he says he is. And if he is who he says he is, then he is one to be bowed in front of. He is one to be elevated as Lord and Master and the centerpiece of all things. It has been said that if a man walks out of his grave, he is who he says he is, and everything he says is true. Jesus has risen from the dead. In fact, Jesus correctly predicted that he would rise from the dead. That was mind-blowing to the disciples. They had heard him say such things. But even on the first Easter morning when they went to the tomb, they couldn't quite put it all together. It did not make sense to them. This was not what they thought was going to happen because they thought it was over. If Jesus, because he has been raised from the dead, and he predicted his rising from the dead, that he is the one who can take us with hope through our life today and into our eternal life 
to come. Starting today and the next two Sundays after today, I want us to focus on the word hope. And I want us to think from different perspectives what hope is and how Jesus brings hope into our life and how that carries us through our lives. Next week, we're going to look at what hope is when it emerges out of hopeless situations and why it is something we need and something we cling on to. But we're going to read today out of Luke chapter 24, the story as Luke shares it on the resurrection. The Bible says, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? I want to pause there. They were not coming to look for the living among the dead. These women had arrived at this graveyard to look for the dead man, Jesus, among the other dead people. And so this is a stunning question. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Remember, the angel said, how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and then on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Now the dots are beginning to be connected. They're still dumbfounded by this experience. You might remember in Matthew chapter 16, before Peter, or right after Peter, um, had proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah, um, Jesus says these things, the Bible says about Him, that from that point forward, Jesus began to explain to them that He had to go to Jerusalem because He knew what would happen in Jerusalem. That he had to suffer and die and on the third day be raised to life again. So the angels asked the women who first came to the tomb, remember what he said. Perhaps those were some of the words that came back to their mind. In John chapter 2, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. And he says he's just given a talk. And been encouraging them about their faith. And he's standing with the, the temple, Herod's temple, in the backdrop. And he says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will build it back again. And they begin laughing at him. They said, what? It took us 46 years to build this building. And you're going to say that by yourself, you're going to destroy it and build it back in three days. And of course, he was talking about his own body. You you kill me, and three days later, I'm going to emerge back to life victorious again. Perhaps when the angels told the women visiting the tomb, remember what he told you? Maybe they remember him saying those words after the resurrection. Uh, uh, Later on in Luke chapter 24, there were a couple of people, a couple of disciples. After the events of the resurrection, this was Sunday morning, Easter morning. They're on their way from Jerusalem. Maybe they ordered up an Uber. And they're, they're on their way home. They're going somewhere. They're sad. And the stranger, maybe it's the Uber driver, begins to ask them some questions. Says, hey, what's going on? And they say, are you the only person 
who's not read the headlines in the Jerusalem Times? Are you the only one in this area that has no internet connection and no way of checking the news reports of what's happened? And of course, the stranger is Jesus. And I love this probably my the funniest part of the Bible to me. And he says, no, tell me about it. And so they go in to tell and recount the story of Jesus. They had hoped, they said, we hoped that Jesus was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And now he's dead. All of our hopes are dashed. And Jesus begins to explain to them the whole arc of the story of the Bible, beginning with, the pro- beginning with Moses and, and the prophets of Israel. And he's painting the picture of who Jesus was, the suffering servant of Isaiah, and who Jesus was to be, and why he came was to die, so that he then might rise from the dead, to prove to them and to you and to me that he really can deal with your sin. He really can remove the thing that stands between you and God. And Jesus is the one. And his resurrection validates that. He begins to paint and remind them of the whole story arc of the Bible. And then he, he comes and he pretends like he's going to go this way. And they're like, no, 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 come. We like talking to you. Come with us. And they sit down and, and he takes this bread and, and he, he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it to them. And in that moment their eyes are open and they realize who they're talking to. It's amazing. An amazing account. But they are beginning, they are not anticipating this reality. But Jesus said that he would rise from the dead. And he did just what he said he would do. And if Jesus knows and has hope for his own next steps in his eternal future, and he's promised what he will hold for you who believe in him, that if he's promised and described things about himself, he can hold his promises for you. The women go to the tomb. They're distressed because Jesus is not there. And the message is remember what he told you that he would rise again. And so everything begins to flow out of that realization. Where do we place our trust when we think about our end? Where do you place your confidence when you think about the day when you might die. I know that's not something we we don't think about that as much as people might have done back in 1850 or 1720 or 1510. But the reality is your life has a span on this earth and death will come to you. There's no avoiding it. And where do you place your confidence for your forever life? Because there is forever life. Here's some reassurances as we finish up together this morning. I just want you to hear and be reminded of the promises that God has made for those who believe Him and place their confidence in Him for their eternal future. Jesus said that He would rise from the dead, and He did. And if He's made promises about your future, if you trust in Him, then you can believe with confidence that He will see them through And they will become just as he said they would be. Jesus in chapter of John chapter 14, he reminds them, we looked at this last week, that uh, I am going and I will come back and I will claim you to be with me so that you can be where I 
am. My youth minister in high school, his favorite, uh, his life verse, he called it, was from Colossians 1.27, when the Apostle Paul is talking to the church and individual believers, and he's describing the gospel, and here's what he says. He says, this is Christ in you, the hope of glory, to set your hope in who Christ is and what he is preparing for you in your forever life. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, when Jesus is being described there in his work on the cross and how it's, he's opened up the pathway for relationship with God, he says this, that we have this hope as an anchor for the soul which is firm and secure. Hebrews 6.19. And then in Ephesians, we hear again from the Apostle Paul, he says, you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. And when the Bible describes a seal there, that word in, in the original Greek can be used for different things. It could be used as a dis, uh, security measure. In fact, the Bible says when Jesus was placed in the tomb, that uh, some soldiers went and secured the tomb. They put a seal around the tomb so no funny business would happen. That's what made the women, when they first arrived there, this shocked them all the more. Because who could open this tomb? It had been sealed. So we, we know about if you've ever packed a lunch for your child for school. And you know when, when the security feature of your Tupperware fails. Right? You know what I'm talking about. When I bring your lunchbox home and it's filled with Gross. We love the seal that brings security that holds things in. That's one way the word seal, when Apostle Paul uses it, can be used. But it also can be used as a way of identification. It's a seal of identity on you. Are there certain products that you buy at the store? And there might be five options, but there's only one brand that you'll buy. Because it has a particular seal, it has a particular name on it, and it's something that you trust. It's been verified because you've used it, you've tasted it, whatever it is. This is the way this word seal is being used in this passage. That God has marked you when you heard the gospel and you gave your life to Jesus. He's marked you with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. In other words, He, he has claimed you as His, as his beloved treasure. You are now marked in Christ. And you're sealed in Him. You're a child of God. And that opens up to you the relational uh, privileges and the inheritance that is promised and preserved for you. Your eternal hope is secure in Jesus who leads you through this life and into your next forever life. I want us to finish this morning, Steve, if we might sing just a couple of verses of the song, The Solid Rock. What number is it? Hymn number 511. Would you open your hymn, Noel? I just want to share with you a little bit about Edward Moat, who wrote this song. It's probably a familiar song to some of you. The first verse says that my hope, my hope is built on nothing less 
than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly, in other words, entirely lean on Jesus' name. Edward Moat was born in London. His parents owned a pub. They were not... um, They were not religious in any way, had no interest in raising him up to know God. In fact, he said, I didn't even know there was a God. He grew up on Sundays and he would be out on the streets, often neglected by his parents. At age 18, Edward Mote had an experience with the Lord Jesus. His life was different. He he had been apprenticing to become a cabinet maker. For the next 35 or so years, he, he went to work as a cabinet maker. And it was while he worked as a cabinet maker, one day he, I guess he went whistling to work, I don't know. But all of a sudden this tune came into his mind, and these words began to develop, and before the workday was done, this song was penned. And you will recognize the song, some of you, and if not, we're just going to sing the first and fourth verses. He's reflecting on the invitation from Jesus to come and build your life on me. And when you do that, it's like building your life on solid ground. It's like the bedrock of life. It's not the Millennium Towers of San Francisco. When you build on Jesus, you're building your life on something solid and secure and your hope, your hope in this life and your eternal life is built on nothing else. Not your own goodness. Not just the fact that you're, you're a little better than the person to your left on the pew or the person to your right. Take a look around. That's not what we rest in. We can all make our own measurements for my own goodness. We do it all the time. But God said, stop with that silliness. I've given you a measure, and I will be the executor of the end of your life. And Edward Mote, who wrote this song, reminds us that our hope is built and it is secured by nothing else but Jesus' blood. And his righteousness. Let's stand together and let's sing this song. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>